I'm not a real big Twitter user, uh, but occasionally I'll check it. Uh, I have an account for whatever reason. It was necessary for church stuff at one point. Um, but w- one of the funniest people on Twitter is Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. Um, and among his many uh, funny tweets, uh, this was a couple years ago, where he simply said, I've been busy. What are we unnecessarily outraged about now? I don't know about you, but it seems like people are angry an awful lot, doesn't it? And, and kind of hypersensitive about an awful lot of things. Cer- certainly there are things to get angry about and upset about and feel you know, that, that there's injustice all around. I'm not saying there isn't. But, but I would suggest to you that we have gotten to a point right now where we're really good at critiquing others and we're really bad at correcting those we love. Anybody else feel that? We're very good at critiquing others. If we feel like somebody's doing something wrong, it's very easy to tell them. But, it's, but for those that we love, it's a lot harder to speak the truth in love. And, and I think we're getting worse and worse at it because it's easy to be right, it's tough to be wrong, and it's tough when the truth, really an important truth, is that close sometimes and asks something big of us to change within us or somebody that's close to us. It really requires a real kind of love to do that. Uh, Tim Keller, I came across this quote from him this week. He said, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Larry, can you take out a little of my mid-range in my vocal? Because I can feel I'm buzzing. I'm not there yet. I'm not that excited yet, but we'll get there. Love without truth is sentimentality. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5 here uh, in a moment. And I do encourage you to turn to Ephesians 5 or find it some way. Uh, But as we're looking at that, uh, one of the things about it is, uh, even in the church, we're affected by this, where we we tend towards sentimentality too easily rather than uh, speaking the truth in love. And what we're going to see in Ephesians is that, in fact, we're, we're called to be like Christ in Christ's love and God's love exemplified through Christ. And one of the ways that we, we respond in, in the church these days is we tend to work out of, out of God's love for us as we're created by God and so God loves us and we're good to go. Can I just point out, and, and a mentor of mine uh, in pastoral ministry has pointed this out to me. When you read the Apostle Paul, that's not the position he actually takes. Of course we're created in the image of God. Of course that's important. Of course that gives inherent value to life. But the Apostle Paul works out of the new creation, the redeemed humanity. He doesn't simply say, we were created this way and good to go, you're ready to go. No, he says, Christ came to redeem us so that we could be what God intended for us to be. It's not about who you are, it's about who you're becoming in Christ. And we should see that trajectory in what Paul is saying today in Romans 5. And so as we open up God's word to Romans 5 here in a moment, as we open up, hear that, God's word to Romans 5, and we hear about God's love exemplified and the effect that it should have on us, here's a simple way to start. Do you believe, church, that God has something to say to you today? Is there a witness in the house? Do we believe that God has something to say to you today? Okay, you're with me. As we open this up, do you believe that God has designed for us to make us the mature body of Christ, to serve Him? And if you believe that, we recognize that the redemption God gives us through Christ is a pretty big promise 
There's a promise behind all of that of who we're supposed to become because of the work of Christ, not simply who we were born as. There's a difference there. And if you believe in God's promises, the equation is simple. You're going to walk in God's ways. I hope we see that today in Ephesians 5. And if we're walking in God's ways to become the mature body of Christ, then the text that sat behind this sermon series is the one in Revelation 7-9 of who we're ultimately supposed to be as the mature body of Christ. We will see God's creativity from the very beginning, the redeemed creativity of the new creation at the very end, standing before the throne, every tribe and nation, language and people, praising God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the mature body of Christ who we're supposed to grow, and we should see some of that happening within the body now. That's the excitement. That's where we should be. Now, let's go to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Uh, Paul begins this, and he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Quite simply, be imitators of God. We'll never become God. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. We will never become God. But we are created in God's image. Let's start from that, what we said before. And the redemption is to put us back on track to reflect God's image as image bearers. And so Paul uses some very strong language here to tell us to imitate God, who we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to have some of that character within us, and it has been broken or vandalized or marred or messed up in whatever way by sin within us. And Paul doesn't say, I think you should glean principles of what God is like, but you can also glean principles from other places and put together your own thing. No, he says, look like God. That's what you need to do. That's the example that you have before you. Now look like that. And I was thinking about this this week. Uh, if we just want to glean principles and kind of get the, the, kind of the idea of this, but look around for other sources, I mean, think about your workplace. If you've ever worked, especially not just at a place with a dress code, but where you have a uniform. Anybody worked at a place with a uniform? I've worked at a couple of those. Uh, we'll take Starbucks. I worked there years ago. Black is the color of choice. Why? You're working with coffee. Makes sense. And so you're wearing black pants, usually a black polo shirt. If, if I would have worked there and gone walking in in all purple, but still the same kind of shirt and pants, that's close, right? But they're going to send me home or they're going to say, don't do that again, or something like that when I walk behind the counter because that's not the uniform. It's a parody of the uniform, right? So we can kind of glean principles, certainly, of things like God, but if they're not who God is, they're parodies. They're not the real thing. We're supposed to imitate the real thing. Follow the example of Christ that way. And, and if further, then Paul narrows it down. He says, so you're supposed to do it this way. Love as Jesus loved. That is to say, unconditionally and sacrificially. Those are the ways that Jesus loved. Jesus loved not because he would get something out of the equation, but because he wanted to. That's what love really is, ultimately. It's not, I give something to you so that I get a like or I get a good feeling. That's not love. That's happiness or something else. No, love is giving for the benefit of the other person, not expecting anything in return. That's unconditional. I, I'm, there's no conditions to me giving out the love. That's what we should be. Furthermore, it's sacrificial. 
It cost an awful lot of Jesus to give that love, didn't it? It cost him his life. And if you want to render the gospel powerless, then you would do the opposite of those two things. You would make uh, everything about yourself, and you would uh, certainly not sacrifice in order to get the benefits that Christ has to offer. You'd want to get it for nothing. Now, when Paul is writing this, he's writing this with uh, the Gentiles and the Jews in mind together now, coming to church and becoming this body. They're supposed to become the mature body of Christ. The faith that they're entering into together, the long-awaited Messiah has come, that made a lot of sense in the Jewish context. It was very appealing, though, to those who weren't Jewish, to Gentiles. There had been a lot sitting at the wings, waiting to enter into this faith. Then when the Messiah finally came and they recognized Jesus for who he was, you had many more Gentiles coming into the equation, and the church had to figure out, how do we live together as God's holy people? What does this look like? And the Gentiles were coming in for all kinds of different reasons, but they were coming in 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 a spiritual culture. That's what they lived in. There were spiritual options all around them, but they saw something authentic and true in the work of God in the work of Yahweh. They came in because the church offered them real value in a culture where they didn't really ever feel valued. Unless you had money, you really weren't anybody at all. And they entered into the church because they gave them a sense of purpose. There were many other reasons why, but those are some of the major reasons why. And and indeed, then, they came in and the church had to figure out, how do we do this together? How do we love? How How do we live unconditional love? How do we live sacrificial love together? And how do we become not just a bunch of persons who know this Messiah, but a people? The church. That's what they're struggling with. That's what Paul is encouraging them to. And a lot of things fight against becoming the people and just being the persons who know Jesus. In our particular day and age, I would suggest to you the two things that enter in quite constantly are individualism and consumerism. Those are the things that war against our soul to try and pull us out of uh, the truth of the gospel quite regularly. Individualism, that's, the individual is important. Don't hear me say it's not. But when we take that too far, that it's not just I'm important, but it's all about me, that's the sovereignty of self, then we have a problem. Consumerism, when we simply want the benefits with very minimal cost to us. When we want things now, not later, we want it with two-day free shipping, right, as quickly as possible. And, and we start to think that, that really we can get everything that conveniently. All of a sudden, we consume everything, including church, including the Bible, including Jesus. How can I get the benefits for the lowest cost? And what happens is this wars against our soul because then in those particular cases, it really is all about my personal individual experience. And if it doesn't meet up with that, then I'm done with it. And if it doesn't happen at the pace that I want it to happen, then I'm not going to consume that item. And even if we're going to extend love in that kind of environment, if we're going to be charitable in some way, we're going to do it in a way that is convenient and asks us to give out of our abundance, not with any sacrifice. Right? So I'm going to text to give to the Red Cross $10 when the hurricane comes, and I'm going to feel good, but I didn't notice that I lost $10 out of the deal. It didn't really affect me in any way, but I felt good. Let's go on to the key passage I want to look at here with that in mind then, Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. Paul writes, For you were once darkness. 
but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Paul is clear here. He doesn't say once you were similar to darkness, once you were kind of, you had some darkness around you. What does he say? Once you were darkness. That's powerful, isn't it? Before Jesus Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're living in darkness. Once you know Jesus Christ, all of a sudden now you're connected to the light, the source of that light. You are light. And Paul gives examples, if you look above at verses 3 through 7, which I won't read for you, but Paul gives three categories to illustrate this, categories of sin to illustrate this. He talks about sexual sin, language, and greed. Those three things. He's not giving a full list of the only things that are the darkness. He's just picking out probably three things that particularly affected the people he's writing to, uh, which would make sense in his world. But uh, sexual sin, language, greed, these sin categories, they are darkness. And they they can play off of the good that God has created and drive us into the darkness. Uh, To put it a different way about sin, Klein Snodgrass, in commenting on this, says, Sin has been described as seeking to get more out of life than God put into it. That's a really good description. Seeking to get more out of life than God put into it. And so it's easy for us, if we're consumers and if we're individuals, and that's how we think of ourselves, uh, to then look at the things we want to do, And look behind the sin and see what causes us to follow these paths of things that would be in the darkness category rather than the light. I'll pick out two particular things that stand behind the sin. One is, if we're individuals and we're consumers, and that's all we are, then what stands behind the sin is often a sense of injustice in our lives. I feel cheated of experiences and of emotions and of good feelings. And we can justify ourselves in order to achieve those ends. I want to feel different than I do now. I want to feel better. Why do uh, other people have things that I don't have or experiences I don't have or money that I don't have or whatever it is, I'm going to do what it takes to get that. We feel a sense of personal injustice. And closely related to that, we feel a sense of discontentment. That's where this idea of going beyond what God has given us makes total sense. We feel deprived. And so we'll do an awful lot if we're simply individuals and simply trying to get the benefit of everything we can to fulfill those. When I do premarital counseling, I talk about halt, not my invention, but halt when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When we're one of those things, we will do whatever it takes to fulfill those needs. If it gets bad enough, sometimes we'll do some pretty extreme things to take care of those needs. But when you go just one step further, and what wars against us for this kind of love that Christ gives for us to exemplify that. And you take individualism and you take consumerism when they become isms in our lives. Uh, And you add to it that we live in a pluralistic culture as they did in Ephesians. And what that means is there are lots, there's a buffet of worldviews and truths out there. And pluralism says they're all equal, right? You can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this and make up your own worldview or religion or whatever. 
you put all that together, and if it's really about my experience and about me getting the benefits of whatever I want because I feel a sense of injustice or I feel discontent and I feel cheated in life, and I've got all these options, then I can take all of these options and put together whatever I want, and that's my experience. There's God right there. I've defined what God is. Well, let me just point out, the church stands in contrast to that. And the church functions as the grounding to keep us, us, focused on true contentment, on actual justice, on love that speaks truth. All of these things imitating God who gave us Jesus Christ and became a fragrant offering for us. And let me just point out one way that, one really simple, subtle way that this wars against us even in the church. Uh, this, this, uh, this me experience. In the church, we often will have Bible studies and we'll start with the wrong question. It's not a question that can't be asked eventually, but we start with the wrong question. What does this verse mean to me? We need to start with the question, what does this verse mean? End of statement. Question mark. Because when we move as our first question, what does it mean to me? We've moved to the individual experience. What can I suck out of the verse? to take and affirm me in what I want to know and then walk away. What does the verse mean? Asks, what is this actually asking out of me? How is this not just encouraging, maybe it is, but how is this challenging me to be more like Christ? To be holy as God is holy. And Paul in verse 9, he picks out, he puts it in parentheses, um, where he says, for the fruit of light consists... So this is the stuff of God, of Jesus Christ, for us. The fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. So it's not just a me experience here. Of course, we're being drawn into that. That's the idea. But, but goodness is really God's character. When you get to the root of it, that is who God is. God is good, and everything else stems from that. When he talks about righteousness, that's God's way. That's how we're supposed to operate in the world. And when he talks about truth, that's the reality God has given us to live in. This is the way forward we're supposed to go, to know who God is, to be imitators of that, to walk in that way in righteousness, and to live in God's truth, which is the only truth that exists. And so Paul encourages us to walk as children of light. Now, my translation says live as children of light in the end of verse 8, some of you say walk. Walk is closer to the original word. It is the original word, in fact, and it makes more sense. Live is interpretive. It's fine. But we're supposed to walk or live as children of the light. Now, if, if we let individualism and consumerism, those things, attack us too much and become isms and become our entire experience of all that God has to offer in this world, we can easily think that we're like the sun. We can easily think that we are, uh, and, and we do this on social media, don't we? Like we put something out there and we want everybody to notice, and we want the likes, and we want that kind of thing. We think things revolve around us, even if we don't want to admit it. We can be like the sun, and things orbit around us, and we're self-fueling. We don't need much to keep us going. We've got almost everything we need, and if we don't have it, we can buy it, right? Very quickly. But let me point out a couple things. One, even the sun eventually runs out of fuel, and things run into it from time to time, or a star. And two, uh, we're actually more like light bulbs when you think about it. We're more like light bulbs the way that this is, is telling us here. 
we're something that needs to be plugged into a power source in order to illuminate. And if we're short of that and somebody turning on the switch, we're pretty much useless. We're darkness. That's what Paul is telling us. On your own, as the individual, as the consumer, and that's it, darkness is not what you're like, it's what you are, Paul says. And through the work of Christ, the light illuminates and transforms who we are. And so what the light does, among other things, is the light actually purifies, we see as we keep reading the text. It transforms the imitator, the one who would live as God has called us to live, who would walk in righteousness, who would live in goodness, who would live in truth, as Paul's outlined. And we're called to this path of obedience, to walk with the Lord as light. The light purifies us. And, and it comes back down to this, this issue of God's promises and the hope that we have then in God as the redeemed. If you've chosen that path and you're redeemed, then there is something greater coming. And what we have now is just a foretaste of what's to come. And it will bring with it good days and bad days. But it, we can live through that and exist through that because of the joy God gives us and the hope that's coming. And if we try and steal all the goodness that today has to offer, then what we're saying is we don't have hope in the future. We only have hope now. And so if you believe God's promises, if you believe that God's promises deliver transformative truth, abundant life, contentment, fulfillment, real justice, and even meaning to life, then you will walk with God. And if you doubt that, that God's promises deliver transformative truth, abundant life, contentment, fulfillment, real justice, and meaning, then you're going to try and supplement. You're going to seek other means in order to get that hope now And what's worse is too often it's easy to operate as if God's promises are what are there, but we're actually operating uh, as though we're trying to supplement. And when we do that, we pretend like God has something to offer, but we have a couple things in our back pocket just in case. And what do we do to God at that point? We relegate God to the pantheon of a God, one of many. And we put ourselves with God as an idol in that same pantheon. And so that's why Paul highlights some very specific ways that, that the world that he's writing to the church in Ephesus faces these. When he talks about sexual sin, what are you doing when that happens? You're desecrating uh, the, the image of God in you, is what he says. Sex only makes sense with marriage. And when we take it away from that, we've broken the icon that, of what God is doing in the world. And we actually make it an idol. Coarse language or the language issue. Let's just sit on this for a moment that Paul picks out there in verses 3 through 7. When he talks about that, what's happening when, when you do filthy language or coarse joking or those kinds of things, which is what Paul talks about in multiple places, actually, in his letters. Essentially, what we're doing is we're making vice normal and we're making light of virtue at that point. That's what happens when we'll, when we'll allow ourselves to go that way. So if we think of this... Um, uh, as light and as purification and what Jesus Christ does to us, let's think of an example. About 17 years ago, uh, National Geographic came out with an issue, the water issue. I thought it was one of their best they've ever had. And it talked about a lot of the issues with water around the world and access to water and, and things that we still talk about today. One of the things I thought was cool is really low-tech ways that around the world that they try and purify water for people so that it, it's clean when they drink it and they don't get uh, sick uh, from very preventable diseases. And so in South America, they had this picture in the issue where they had a, a tin roof and a, a slant 
facing the sun like you would with a solar panel, and the kids that come to school there at the school would take their water bottle and they'd all stack them up on each of the slats of the tin roof, and then the heat of the sun comes in and essentially pasteurizes the water on the hot tin roof. Super low-tech, easy way to purify the water. How cool is that? How simple. A solution. That's what the light of Christ does to us. It essentially works in that pasteurization process to take out the impurities within us and anything that is in us that would cause us to be dark or to walk away or to not walk paths of righteousness then can be rendered ineffective by the purifying process of Jesus Christ. And that something is transformed inside of us by the light of Christ. But our language indicates the depth of our transformation. It indicates how much of that transformation and purification has actually taken place. What we're willing to say, to laugh at, to think about, might be what we're willing to do, but at least it's sitting in us and it's working on us, whether we want to admit it or not. It has not been purified out of us. Vice has been made normal, making light of virtue. Paul also brings up uh, greed, which is essentially stealing from God, um, as would a lot of these things be, and the whole idea of sin, taking now uh, beyond what God has given. But the question then comes down at the end is, do you want to live in the light of the Lord? When, when Paul addresses this, what do we actually want? And it's interesting, when you think about the light, it not only purifies, but let's talk about one other thing the light does. If we're talking light and darkness, light also reveals Right? It reveals what needs to be changed in us and what doesn't match up with God's intent. And so if we want to be a part of what God promises, and if we want to be purified, we need to allow that light to reveal in us the promises that God has for us. And that is the path to what God has in store. The light reveals, and we should also recognize that part of this is an issue of timing. Do we want to experience the promises, or do we want what's in us to be revealed later? When we're beyond the point where we actually have chosen Christ, and they're revealed after the fact. And the difference in that is tremendous, right? Because the difference is the difference between promise or punishment. It's the difference between experiencing God's love and abundant life, even starting now, and taking the target uh, of sin off of us because God's wrath is there and it's a real thing and it's aimed at sin. And once we're purified, God's wrath is aimed at the sin, not the sin on the person. But if we, if we have not taken care of the sin, if Jesus has not transformed that in us, guess where the wrath of God is aimed? At us. The light purifies and, and it also illuminates what needs to be redeemed. And unless we're redeemed, that wrath ends in death. So Paul tells us how to proceed as his people, as God's people. Paul tells us two distinct things in this passage. He says, walk, and he says, discern. It's teach is, is the word down there too, but it's discern, really. If we're going to walk in the light of the Lord, here are three simple uh, sort of grades of, of things that we can and should do. One is allow Jesus to change you. If you're sitting there and you say, boy, this sounds interesting, but I've never actually been purified. I just prayed a prayer and never did anything more. Uh, actually ask for that transformative process. Uh, forgiveness, certainly. Repentance, yes. And a turning. That's what repentance is. 
to be a disciple. So to be purified, allow Jesus to actually change you. Second, church, if you've already done step one and you've said, okay, Jesus, change me, I'm your disciple, guess what? By virtue of that, you're part of the church. You happen to be sitting with a component of the church today. You need to be open to allowing the church to change you as well and shape you. That's the week in, week out, coming together, grouping, worshiping, all of those things, and being humble enough to let other people speak the truth and love into your life, to encourage when it needs to be encouragement, and to challenge when you need challenge. Because if we're not willing to do that, then we have to ask what transformation has really occurred inside of us through Jesus Christ. And third, we need to model for others what the change looks like. So we're not just people who receive, but we also give and speak the truth in love. And then we model that when we walk out of this place. Do you want to know what the church looks like? I'm right here. You're right there. I'm in my workplace doing this thing. I'm being the church. Second, we need to discern what God, what pleases the Lord, Paul says, to understand this thing. And I would suggest to you, never ever dismiss virtue Um, It might come in various different ways from various different people. Uh, We're in a particular uh, wing of the church that sometimes could be described uh, uh, under the umbrella of evangelical, sometimes could be described as casuistic. Look it up later. You'll you'll enjoy it. Um, Or pharisaical, uh, if you want to put it in a different way. Uh, That is to say, some people might do the right thing, but it kind of comes across and rubs people the wrong way in an abrasive fashion or something like that. But I would suggest never dismiss virtue on its merits. If you see somebody doing good, say, why is that good? Or is that good? And is that something that's in me? Take it in. Weigh it out. Because then the second thing is test what others say about God. And and test for the truth. If somebody says God is like, well, test it. Weigh it out. We've got all kinds of things that people are saying God is like. And especially Jesus is like. Jesus is love. Well, let's define love. Got about 16 different definitions of love floating around out there in culture. Only one of them is probably right or close to it. Test it out. Weigh it out. Is that really what God is like or not? And the third thing that, that relates very clearly to that is you've got to know the mind of God if you're going to test it out and if you're going to look at virtue around you and say, is that really virtuous? Is that really good? Is that really something that's supposed to be at work in me because I know Christ? Know God's heart. And God has given us a way to know that so we can discern through his word. Make that a part of who you are from beginning to end. See, if you believe God's promises and the hope that he has for us to become the mature body of Christ, to stand before the throne someday, we're supposed to begin living that way now as subjects of his kingdom, even though the kingdom hasn't fully arrived. Living under the king, worshiping at his throne. If you believe God's promises, it's a simple equation. You're going to walk in God's ways. That's what Paul tells us. And through that, as his people, we become the mature body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, can we delight in you today? Can we delight in your word and your faithfulness? Can we delight in your goodness and your righteousness? And can we delight in the fact that truth exists and we can know it exists and we can know you because you are found in the truth? God, help us not be distracted by ourselves. You've given us great value. But even in that value, we stray from you and become darkness. Make us light. 
Even in that great value that you've given to all of your creation, sin pushes against. Death knocks at the door. The devil lurks around the corner trying to trip us up so that we would do everything that would not please you. Father, may we do things that are pleasing in your sight and have the fragrance of your Son, Jesus Christ, in all that we do, in all of our ways. May we embrace virtue, not vice. May we uphold the goodness of who you are, your righteousness. God, for those of us who feel distant from you today, will you help us not only grieve the distance, but walk towards you? God, for those of us that feel far too comfortable, ah, we know you, we're good enough. We've read parts of the Bible, we're okay. Will you unsettle us today? Test us and weigh us out. And call us by your spirit closer. That we would know you. And that we would be purified and transformed in the process. God, don't let us walk out of here unchanged after hearing your word. May your word wash over us and not be what it means to me, but what it means. That we would be changed because of it. We pray this in your name. The name of your son, Jesus. Who showed unconditional, sacrificial love. May we do the same. Amen.